Now, I'm often not home or when my children get home. I'm here at work. But there are occasions where I get to, my wife has to work and I have to get to take the kids home. Invariably, as she has told me, I have seen the evidence. My children have two words that always come out of their mouth when they come home. And those words are, I'm starving! In that intonation. So that's exactly how they... Anybody else have children who have those two words coming out of their mouth? Okay, so... I don't know what's going on because I pack them a good, I don't pack, but they pack themselves good lunches. They, they make a sandwich, they get their, their, their snack in there, they make sure they have a fruit and a vegetable and everything else. Well-rounded, they get their water bottle, they've got it all there, it's all zipped up, ready to go, whether they remember it or not, it's not my fault. And then they get themselves all the way to school and for some reason, by the time they get home, they're still starving. Now I do have two little boys and they're the ones that are starving, they're growing, I get it. But invariably, when I get home after five o'clock and they're still starving, I go, oh, you're starving? Well, what happened to your lunch? And I'll open it up. And invariably, I'll pull the apple out and I'll pull the carrots out and I'll pull the sandwich out. And I'm like, no wonder you're starving. What are you eating for lunch? Anybody else have that problem? Because it drives me crazy. I think the school here is sneaking them snacks. I think that's the thing I, I'm guessing at at this point. They're just like, I'll trade you this or thank you. It's like they're not eating anything in their lunch. So of course they're starving. And so I get really frustrated with this reality of stuff being left in the sack. And, and my kids know that. And so there are certain rules that we have about that, but I'm not going to go into those. But what I'm curious about is I wonder if God gets frustrated with us leaving things in our sack. Not our lunch sack but kind of the sack of life, kind of the thing that he's gifted you with, he's put into your sack the, for, for your living, for your, for your work day, for your life. And invariably, we, we come to God and we have our I'm starving complaints and he opens it up and goes, what are you talking about? You still have stuff in here. I'm getting this from a particular place in the book of John. If you want to go there with me, we'll open to John chapter 6. So grab your Bible. We want to look at John 6. We're going to go through 1 through 15. And if you don't have a Bible, uh, Bibles are available under the seat. You can actually join with us and you don't have to worry about not having a Bible with you. Or if you have your device, it's there. The page number is 891 for the Bibles under the seats. And you're right there with us. Now, John has uh, just finished another segment in the scriptures. He, Jesus has just healed a man at the pool of Bethesda. He has been challenged by the Jewish people. He's claimed that he's equal with God. And he goes, no, I'm not just equal. I am God. He's laid that out. And then Jared last week, didn't Jared do a great job, by the way? Can we just thank Jared for that? It was awesome. And last week, Jared walked us through, Jared's our youth pastor, looking at the five different testimonies that Jesus says, you don't have to trust me, trust God, trust you know, John the Baptist, the word of God, Moses, all these guys. That's who you need to trust. But the reason you don't believe isn't because you don't have ample testimony. The reason you don't believe is your pride. And so Jesus kind of levels it at them. You don't believe because you like getting the pat on the back from everybody around you instead of from God himself. And so John gets into now a totally different mood. He switches locations. The story re reverses. We're not in Jerusalem any longer. Now we're in Galilee, and that's where we pick up. Um, Galilee's in the north it is, at a small, it is a small lake uh, or sea called the Sea of Galilee, and that's where we're going to zoom in at. So right here, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. Um, Tiberias is the second name, one of the second names. Actually, has like three or four names. But it's the later name in history of the first century for the Sea of Galilee, named after the town Tiberias, which was at the southern 
western portion of, of, that, of that sea. So John's just kind of referencing for their culture this different place. It says, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. So we have this picture. And I'll stop, and we'll walk through this. Jesus has just been to one of the towns there in, in Galilee, probably multiple of them, Capernaum and other ones. And as he's been teaching and he's been working through these, in these towns, he's been healing people. As an image of the kingdom of God, he's revealing how Jesus has come to restore all things, to transform this world, restore the earth, restore people to health, restore the poor to their, from their poverty. He's, he's just there to reverse this world and bring it to what God intended in his kingdom. And as he's doing this, people are noticing this. They're gathering in crowds. They're getting more and more excited, pumped up to follow Jesus. And this crowd is amassed from town to town to town. And now he's headed out in what is today known as the Golan Heights, which is kind of the highest points near the Sea of Galilee. And so as he's traveling in there, he climbs up on one of these mountains, sits down, and and angle, they can see this crowd, this massive group of people that's been following him starting to come up near Verse four then throws a new piece in and just kind of random. It says, now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. And John intends this for a few reasons. Number one, Passover comes in the spring. So you'll see that actually in other places, this, uh, this miracle is attested four other times or three other times in the other three gospels. So here, Matthew, Mark, and Luke also have the same story. This is such an impactful moment in their lives that all four of them decide this is the one miracle that's found in all four of the gospels. And so suddenly this is so important because it happens around the Passover, which other verses says it was cool, it was in the spring, the grass was green, all these kind of point to the same time period. And so Jesus is, but, or sorry, Jesus has Passover on the mind. So did all of the other disciples and the crowd. Now Passover, if, you, if you're kind of new to your Bible, was the event that the Jewish people to this day still celebrate. And it commemorates Israel becoming a nation. Moses was down in Israel, or down in Egypt, sorry, and he was with all the people there. They were enslaved. And Moses was raised in the house of Pharaoh, and uh, God calls him back, to, back into Egypt after he's kind of murdered somebody and, and disappeared out into another country and comes back to free the people. And so in the midst of all this, all these signs God does through Moses, and it comes to this final event, the final plague in which he's going to kill the firstborn of all the Egyptians, and this is, um, not, this is kind of a, a very retributive term. God is doing this because is, Egypt has been systematically killing off the Jewish boys on purpose to limit them. So God says, fine, now we're going to kill off your firstborn sons. And so that night, he tells the Israelites, listen, the Hebrews, listen to me. You need to take a lamb, kill the lamb, cook it, eat it, whatever's left, burn it, but take some of the blood and paint it over the doorpost. So when the angel of death comes, he will pass over the home and not kill the child, the firstborn inside, but will move on. And so this freaky scene happens where at the night, there's all this crying that begins to occur throughout the, throughout the Egyptian land of Ramses, and, and all this stuff goes on. And they wake up in the morning, and Pharaoh says, get out of here, we don't want you around anymore. And so they loot the Egyptians, move on out. Finally, he turns around and says, no, I do want them back, and sends out an army, and they come to the Red Sea, and it parts. And the dramatic scene, they cross through to the other side, and then God lets the army of, of Egypt march into the middle, and then he covers them over with water. All of this is commemorated in the Passover, because in that event, those series of events, they became a nation, and they found their freedom and their independence. 
And so at this meal, they would sit and they would talk about the coming Messiah who would set them free from Rome. At this meal, they talk about Moses and the great things God did through him. They would reference Elijah who was, come be, who was to come back before the Messiah came. So they have all this symbolism put together in this picture of the Passover meal. And so this is on the mind of everybody. This is the big festival. This is a Christmas time kind of thing for the Jewish people in this time period. And so they've left. Maybe they're about to get ready to go to Passover. They just come from Passover, but this is on their mind. And now they come out after Jesus. So Jesus in verse five now lifts up his eyes. And then seeing that the large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Anybody want to be on that end of a test? I mean, literally, Jesus asks you a question, and you don't know it, but Jesus is testing. He's like, I want to find out how faithful you are, Philip. Or you got, I got some news for you. you got to, and, but Philip kind of, I, I hate to say it, he sort of fails the test in a sense. He's looking at this giant, massive crowd coming towards him and says, hey, where are we going to get bread for all these people? And Philip's response is, well, 200 denarii wouldn't buy enough bread for, the, for the, each of them to get it even a little. We couldn't serve snacks to these people for, for 200 denarii. I know 200 denarii, a denarii is a, is a small coin, about yay big. It would be a day's wage. So if you calculate that out in modern day's wages, if you were to do just, let's, let's just go with the, uh, the minimum wage, you, it's about $16,000. So he says, hey, $16,000 wouldn't cover enough for everybody to have snacks. That's a lot of money. That's a big crowd. That's a lot of people. What is going on here? And, and so Philip is being asked this question, where are we going to feed all these people from? Philip's like, I have no idea. He's looking at this from a human perspective. Do you ever feel like that, like Philip does? I mean, you look at our political scene. Or maybe you see a problem in our church. Maybe you see the fact people don't pray as much anymore. Or maybe you look out there and you see the problems with the slavery that we're having in America. Or maybe you're seeing the movements that are, that are being enforced or the things that are happening in, in football games, or whatever it is for you. You see a problem, it overwhelms you. You're like, I don't know what to do about this. In fact, if you look at it from a human perspective, your vote doesn't count, your voice isn't heard, and you live in California. What in the world can you do? <laughs> and honestly, I think a lot of us feel very similar to that. How in the world can you motivate the church? There's so many people here. You know, you don't have the voice from the pulpit. You, can, you don't have my phone number. You, you could complain, but you're not gonna be listened to or whatever you feel like. How do we make anything change when we have Philip's perspective? Philip honestly is looking at this, and he's looking at it right at least in this 16,000, not even going to cover. And then there's Andrew. As we pick up in verse 6, or sorry, in um, verse 8, he says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Hey, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what is what are they for so many? I have a picture of this. Like Andrew's like, yeah, yeah, kid. Oh, yeah. oh okay, yeah, come here. Hey, I got a kid here. He's got five loaves and two fish. And all the, everybody looks at him like, so? Uh, yeah, what, what is that for so many? <laughs> Silly me. I think that's kind of how this played out. He comes up with faith and they're like, what? Because I think that's what we'd all do. Like, yeah, that's nice. Your wallet, you got a $20 bill. What's that going to do? for so much of a problem. You got a tiny little bit, that's not gonna cover anything. And yet, here's the interesting thing. I think historically we would say Andrew did the right thing in the test. 
But let's, let's be honest, this is a big problem. Look at this. There's 5,000 people in number, it'll say in verse 10. Jesus said, have these people sit down. Now there was a grass in the place and so the men sat down. About 5,000 numbers, just the men. In fact, the other gospels will in- indicate that there was women and children associated with these men. And so scholars have estimated this could range all the way up literally to 20,000 people who were there at the time. We could say it's 10,000. Let's just go with the middle of the road number. That is almost 10 times the size of our church sitting in one location. That is a lot of people hanging out going, hey, we're, uh, we're hungry. And all he brings is a sack lunch. The problems are big. And you open up what's in your sack and you look and you go, I don't got much. I don't have a whole lot to, to help with. I don't have a lot of time to serve at church. I don't have, you know what, really, I don't have very good gifts. I, I don't play the guitar well. I don't sing as well as they do. Or, you know what, I, I'm just so busy. I, I'm here every other week. I don't really have a place I can help. Or maybe you're sitting there going, this problem is so large and I have such a small voice and I don't really have, I can't even, I can't even get the HOA off my back, let alone be able to change California. Any amens on that one? But it's like the, uh, the reality is you're looking, in your, you're looking in what God put in your sack and it's not much. Even maybe you're, maybe you're one of the blessed people, you got tons in your sack, you're like, I got a great lunch. But what is that for such big problems? What is that for a lack of revival in the United States? What is that for the lack of character amongst people? What is the lack what is, what is that compared to the, the huge amount of maybe problems at your workplace and, and you see all of the, all the ways they're cut in corners and you don't really like it? What is that against the races? What is that against journalism that's, that's pushing police officers in a direction? What, what is that for a culture that rather tweet out its, its emotions? We've got so little, no matter how much is in our sack. It's important that we think about that because maybe you're one of those people, as they said, somebody came up to me after, after first service and said, I, 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 what do I have? I don't have anything in there. And I want to encourage you. Everybody's got something. And I want you to bring it to Jesus because Jesus takes this and he doesn't just say thanks and eat it. He uses it. I always wonder, did they like rip the sack out of the kid's hand or something? You're like, hey, we got some food. No. Or did Jesus go, I'll take that. And he's like, oh, Jesus going to eat my food. He's like, I don't know how this works out. But somehow they managed to get the boys lunch and um, they turned to the crowd. He has them sit down. And then Jesus took the loaves, verse 11 says, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Did you know that? as much as they wanted. So it's like Jesus came and took this kid's slice of pizza and turned it into a Chuck E. Cheese. <laughs> like, you literally, it's just enough food for everybody to just eat and be like, oh, I'm stuffed, and have tons and tons of leftovers. In fact, he tells them when they, that he went and they'd eaten their fill, he told the disciples, gather the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, filled 12 baskets with fragments from five barley loaves and left, it, and left by those who had eaten. Now, here's, here's the weird thing. We're not talking about Easter baskets of loaves of bread. We're talking big old laundry basket levels of bread. 
These would have been large baskets used to take goods to market. And they had 12 of these filled up with the leftover bread and leftover fish that they felt like they, they were done, they were full. This is a radical multiplication. This is something very small turned into a gigantic thing. Now, people can get all into like, what, to create matter and all, you know, we can get into the, the function of a miracle in another, in another place. That's not important. The reality is this is attested by four different witnesses and it's hit four times. It was so impactful, so radically overwhelming. He's not just a magician. Here he is in a desolate location and he creates more food than tens of thousands of dollars could have purchased. See, Jesus can do beyond what we can even with a little in our sack. So I ask you, what's in your sack? What's the small gift that he's given you? What's the large talents that you have? What's in your sack? Because God can do far greater things with the little bit that you have if you will just release it over to him than you could ever imagine. You could analyze it like Philip. You could look at everything and think, you know what? There's just no way we can solve these things. Or you can trust that God can use the little bit that you have, the little skills that you have, the little time that you have, the little amount of money that you have, and use it in radical ways for change. That is what this message is trying to get at. What's in your sack? You know, it reminds me of... Um, the. Uh, the story a friend of mine gave us, he was, um, we do this kind of sermon meeting and he was sitting down going, this, this, this has happened to me and it was a really important thing in his life. He had just really um, become a Christian early, early on. He was making decent money, but he didn't really know what to do with it. He had some financial difficulties that he was working through. And he had a friend who was a financial advisor. So he invited his friend over, he had a conversation with the financial advisor and the financial advisor told him, hey, you've got to, uh, you've got to stop giving to that church. You're giving 10% away. He'd been counseled to, to tithe to his church and, and give 10% over to his church. He's like, stop doing that. Save that 10% up. And if you'll do that over this many years, you'll have $50,000 in the bank. You'll be in a good location. You can invest that even further. That's what you need to do with your money. That's wise, that's wise with your money. And so my friend sat there and he's just like, I don't know what to do. A young Christian, just trying to be faithful what he's been taught. And he's like, and he just felt like, no, you know, I gotta trust God. So he chose to continue to tithe and, and over the years, the same amount of years that his friend said that he'd have 50,000 and just put aside the tithe, he continued to tithe to his church. At the end of that time period, he did have $50,000 in his bank account. God had blessed and multiplied and given him jobs and things came in. He wasn't seeking it, but God had just provided. But more importantly, we talked about, and he, and he said, what was amazing is not that I had 50,000. What did God do with the money that I gave? Amen. How many marriages were saved in that church that he was at? Because they got counsel for free before they went their separate ways. What happens to a child's life when that marriage was kept together? Because divorce is so damaging to children. Let alone what happens to that young student who has the choice between the drugs and the youth group and chooses the youth group for some reason because his friends are going there and that youth pastor is there to pour into his life and the people in that church are willing to pour into him. One person connects. What happens when a child receives the knowledge of the Ten Commandments in Jesus and the stories and grows up and, while, and through that process gets discipled? What happens to us when we're able to go and have a James project? That's what happens with the little God multiplies it into ministry in people's hearts and lives. 
and uses it for greater change. Another illustration that's been given to me was a man named Tim Keller. He's a pastor in New York. Speaks about a guy, we'll call him John, who had lost his wife. Now, John is, we had obviously become depressed and kind of reclusive. And so one of the guys in the church decided, I can help John out. I know exactly what to tell him. Sent, went over to his house to quote unquote comfort him. And if you've ever lost anybody, you know what that can be like. They show up with all the perfect verses and everything right to say. And they sit down and they, they started grinding him with the verses. And like, God says, you're going to be able to this and this and this. And John said, I couldn't wait till this guy could leave. Anybody been there before? And then a second guy came over to the house. And he literally sat down, he had these words. I don't have much to give you. In fact, I don't even know what to say. I just feel like I'm supposed to be here. And he sat down. And he sat, and he sat, and he silently prayed. And John, who had lost his wife, said, I, I could have had that guy there all day long. There was something about the smallness of his presence that was healing to the man. What can we do to change the world with just a small thing, maybe even at church? Well, let me tell you another one. There was a young, there was a man, he was, he was a young man, he was in his 30s, nearing his 40s. He'd been doing Sunday school. Sunday school was a big deal in the 1800s. He was teaching Sunday school, and um, he was in Boston. And he just kept teaching Sunday school, and he had the class with the 18 and 19-year-olds. Not the easiest class in the world, if you, if you ask me, for Sunday school. And these men would come in, these young men would come in, and they would be able to sit down. This is before 18, 19-year-olds saw themselves as men, because they couldn't vote yet. But they'd come in, they'd sit down, and they would take these classes. And one of these guys named Dwight was a shoe salesman. And Dwight would come and go, and he would get connected. But he liked Mr. Kimball, because Mr. Kimball, who had taught his Sunday school class, the first day he showed up, asked them all to open up to a particular book of the Bible. And Dwight never having really opened a Bible in his life, sat down, opened a Genesis, started thumbing through, looking for it. Mr. Kimball saw it, grabbed Dwight's Bible and gave him his, which was already open, says, here, it's no problem, mine's already open to it, and saved him from feeling embarrassed. And Dwight said, I'm gonna be with that, Mr. Kimball, no matter where he goes. That guy, that guy did me a good turn. Well, as time goes on, Dwight and Mr. Kimball will talk about Jesus, and Dwight's kind of on the edge, not really sure. And one day, Dwight, uh, Mr. Kimball feels like, I got to show up, and I got to talk to Dwight, and he shows up at the shoe, shoe shop. He's in, Dwight's in the back putting shoes in the box, and he just tells him immediately, he says, sir, you, you've got to listen to me. You've got to give your life to Christ. Explains the gospel again. Dwight falls on his knees and gives his life to the Lord. Now, that would be a little footnote in like any church history. Like, oh, this guy came to Jesus, came for Dwight. Except that D.L. Moody grew up to be one of the greatest evangelists America had ever seen. Dwight Lyman Moody was so well known. He started the Moody Institute, of, um, the Moody Bible Institute, which is still here today in Chicago. Moody was so popular as an evangelist. He had evangelized England and came across and evangelized North America and the United States especially. Was so well known on his death, all that they had to do was publish in the newspaper, Moody is dead and the nation mourned. From a Mr. Kimball who just simply cared about the kid who was in front of him. Released a man who is at the level of Billy Graham and greater to the world. Yeah, you don't have much. Maybe all you can do is teach some simple Bible curriculum to a child. But in your little seed, what can God do? 
And your little care for a student down the street because, hey, it's a junior hire. I don't know what to do with them. And you're just present. And you care. And subtle choices lead them into the path after Christ. And their family is changed. And his grandchildren. And a generation has moved. What's in your sack? What's so small that God can't use it to multiply it? What, what are you holding back from? Why can't he? Why do we hold it in there? Because I guarantee if you get up into heaven and he's like, what? Why, why is something still in your sack? And we're complaining about all the problems in our prayer life. I think he's probably wondering, why do you say you're starving? There's still something you can do. So why don't we get up trusting that Jesus could do something? You see, he doesn't waste anything. You notice he collected all of the food up. He put it in a bat under these 12 baskets because God doesn't waste a thing. Romans chapter, uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says it, that we know for those who love God, all things work according for the good, work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. The point simply is that nothing gets wasted that you give to God. Nothing in your life is wasted. Some of us are sitting there going, I could never do that. Yeah, but you can give what you've got. You can bless where you can. You can use what time you have. God will use every little bit, and he's the one who multiplies it. We may never know what it looks like. And we don't want to get so sure about ourselves that we run around going, hey, God, I got this little bit now. Take it, because you're going to do great things. You better do great things. And that's a danger. Years ago, I was preaching in a series, and it was... Um, Early on, it was in the summertime, and I was, I was really excited about this message in the series, and so I had prepped really hard for these messages. In fact, practiced them routinely, made sure my points were on. I didn't even have my notes on stage. I was so confident about this, and it was super tight, good illustrations, and it was awesome. People laughed, and people cried, and I was like, this is great. And I had this evangelistic ending, and I was, like, I was in full faith God was going to bring people to Jesus, and I'm just like, yes, this is an A-plus in my sermon class, Yes. And I preach this thing and I nail it. I'm even on time, which is rare. And I hit that thing. And it gets the altar call. And I call people to Jesus. And nobody moves. Nobody raises a hand. Nothing happens. I'm just like, come on. A plus sermon, baby. Normally, people will be nice after church. They come and they'll say things like, oh, that was a good sermon. You know, I appreciate that when people do that. I'm not knocking that. But this day, nobody did that. It's like, hey, guys, oh, hi. you're the plague. You know, it's like walking away from me or something. And I'm like, this is, what is this? And I, so I take off. I, I, go to, I go on my vacation. I feel good. I, I delivered a good sermon. I'm a little confused. It didn't land right. And I had offered the opportunity to preach over to our worship pastor at the time. And he had never preached before. So he got up, and I, I mean, he was all energy and fire, and he was, was kind of in the word, and man, it was like a D sermon. <laughs> I don't mean to, I know it's okay. But he's just like, that isn't structured, that's not clear, what is, that's not even a point. People get up in the middle, and they're like, you guys got to listen, this is what we need to do. Like, they're shouting his sermon for him, because people are riled up and moved. Seven people give their life to the Lord, and I'm just sitting here going, what? <laughs> I'm all pride hurt. I'm just like, seven people give their life to him, God. I give you all this time. What do you do? Nobody all griping and complaining, A plus sermon. Because I assumed A plus sermons mean people come to Jesus. And God goes, smack me upside of the head. You proud little idiot. 
I think those were his exact words. <laughs> and he says, don't you understand? You offer to me what you offer, but I work in the hearts of people. There's no amount of words of manipulation that can make you choose Jesus or change your life. God has to work on your heart. And to be quite honest, he worked through, through Jay because he wanted to. And I think he wanted to humble me. And it's always been a good warning. Don't ever take what's in your sack and offer it to him expecting. You gotta do this. I'm giving it to you. Don't do that. But remember the proverb. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. You can offer up the sack lunch. You can offer what's in your sack, but don't, you can't expect him to bring about what you want him to. You see, it's a subtle shift, but I think these people accidentally made it. Verse 14 continues, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who came into the world. Now, what's this all about? Um, there's a story in the Old Testament of a man named Elisha, and Elisha was Elijah uh, times two. Elijah, with the J, was considered the greatest prophet. And Elisha, who came after him, asked for the double portion of Elijah, and he received it. Where Elijah did seven miracles, Elisha did 14. You know, so it's this kind of doubling up. And so Elisha's here and he feeds 100 plus people with just a little bit of food one day at the word of the Lord. And so they all see this and they think about this and they go, wait a minute, this guy's greater than Elisha. He can feed tens of thousands of people. Then he ought to be able to be the, he must be some great prophet, the greatest prophet, the prophet. Remember, what, what time of the year is it? It's Passover. They got Moses on the mind. And they're thinking about Moses and what he's done. And they're going, Moses, the greatest prophet, this must be the prophet. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, it states this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And then he references a time where they were standing at the foot of Mount Horeb where God spoke the Ten Commandments and all the people went, la, 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 we don't want to hear his voice again, that's too scary. We only want to hear you, Moses. He'll talk to you, we're good with that. And that was their decision. And so just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so he says, yeah, I'll bring this great prophet. And Jesus is that final great prophet. He is the prophet of all prophets. There's no one greater than him and he, because he is God himself come to earth, speaking the true words of God. And so this group sees this guy and thinks, this is the prophet. He can provide for us. He can give us food. What kind of power does this guy have? And the prophet had melded into the concept of the Messiah, who they waited for at Passover. And they go, this guy must be Messiah. And so it's no wonder. They rose up to try to make him king. Jesus knew this in verse 15. It says, perceiving then that they were about to come take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus sees the rising up. We're gonna make him king. And Jesus is like, I'm taking a hike. See you later. And he walks away up into the hills. And they don't go after him. But it's a good illustration for us for two things. When we feel like we can, we can make Jesus something, we can't make Jesus to be what we want. 
He is who he is. We may want to take what's in our sack and tell him what he needs to do. What he needs, you need to multiply this. You need to provide for me. You need to take my tithe and give me back a whole bunch of money and meet my debts. You need to take this prayer and you need to heal my, my kid. You need to heal my family. Oh no, you need to take this service and you need to turn one of these kids into a D.L. Moody. No, we can't tell God what to do. We can't tell him what we need him to be. C.S. Lewis illustrated this by making his Jesus figure in the Chronicles of Narnia into a lion. The statement commonly made about Aslan the lion in C.S. Lewis's Narnias is that he is not a tame lion, but he's good. What a perfect illustration of God. You see, there will never be a time in which we will have some theme park in which we will whistle on a little whistle and God will jump out of the water and do a flip in the air and splash the audience. There'll never be a time where at our theme park we can make him jump around and, and God does these special things. No, God will never be tamed by humanity. You can't use the promises to manipulate God into answering your prayer. You can't force him into some corner so he has to act on your behalf. God is a wild God and he will not be tamed by humanity. Jesus was wild. He could not be tamed by humanity. They, they wanted to make him king, but it wasn't time for him to be king. They wanted him to march on Rome and wipe them out like God had wiped out Pharaoh. But that wasn't the time Jesus was going to come as the king. He was there to wipe out something, but he was there to wipe out sin. The greatest tyrant humanity has ever had is our own sin. It is the thing that manipulates us, cajoles us, lies to us, and puts us in the horrible situations that we find ourselves in. It makes us think that our lust is great, that our power is good, and that our thoughts are wise. Constantly deceiving us. And Jesus came and broke the chains of lust and wisdom and pride. Sin is done with. And that's what he came to do, and he did it on the cross. So, of course, he hiked into the mountains. It wasn't time for him to be the king that marched on Rome. Oh, he'll return, and he'll return in judgment, and he'll judge the nations. But his time is not yet. He's being merciful, and he's waiting. And it's not our job to tell him what to do. It's our job to know he can and to come and pray. And that's why in 1 John it says, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. When you're aligned with God's will in your prayers, yes, he will act, because he desires to. But we can't make him act. And so if you offer what's in your bag, what's in your sack, you can't make him use it in the way that you think. It doesn't mean he won't use it. Remember, he wastes nothing. And indeed, he will multiply the effect, but it may not be to the level that we always want. There's two things there, there though. We don't want to manipulate God, and we can't see glory from men. See, on one side, we want God to do something for us. On the other side, we hope that God will do something so I can be Mr. Kimball in a story in the future and, and be praised. But the danger is, in the other way, is that we, like Jesus, must surrender to God's will and not man's. We can't seek glory from us. We must seek the glory from God. In verse 44 of chapter 5, he rebukes the Pharisees by telling them, the Jewish, the Jewish leadership, by telling them, when you receive glory, you receive it from one another and don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. And that's the danger of us as humanity. We want to be well known by each other. We want to be patted on the back by each other. To be quite honest, sometimes I'm not out there after a sermon. And it's not because I don't care about everybody in the church. It's because my pride is so strong that oftentimes I can't handle the compliments if they come. So go ahead and insult me. That's fine. You can do that. That's good. 
hey, Greg, I got these complaints for you this week. Thank you. So, but the reality is that our prides are powerful. And God knows that there are times we offer things to him in our sack and what we're hoping is that somehow we'll gain some glory from it. But that's not what we're up for. We're up to surrender to God's will, not man's. Jesus walked away. He allowed God's timing for his life. Not the people's. The best illustration I have of that, of surrendering your life over so that God is the one who commands it, is Kevin. Uh, Kevin Kane is our outreach director here at the church. And in his time, as he's um, been here, he started off not as a pastor. In fact, he was not even a recruiter for missions at first. At first, he was a pilot. And he flew mission aviation. And he flew around in Indonesia. During his preparation for that, he met his wife, and there in Indonesia, as they flew stuff around, they were seeing things happen for Jesus, but in the midst of his bringing the message to people who'd never heard of Jesus, his daughter was born with cerebral palsy, and suddenly he wasn't able to stay on the mission field for her medical needs, and willingly and sacrificially, he moved back to the United States, and this so-cal boy had to end up living in Pennsylvania. Wonderful. And there, where he felt like, how am I to be used by God? I thought this is where I was going to go and do things. God used him to send hundreds of people overseas to do the work of missions. What looked like a, a problem, a zigzag in his life, wound up being exactly what God did because he was willing to surrender every situation over, not control it. And so I ask you again, what is in your sack? What small thing, no matter how big the problem? Is, is that you can offer to God. Because if we all are offering our small things to God, he's multiplying them all over the place. That's not a small thing anymore. But what is it that you're holding in there? Because one day in eternity, I hope that we've released everything in there. And God's used us as he's seen fit. And those rewards that are welcome in eternity are there. But it begins by you and I surrendering to God what's in our sack. You know, the team's gonna play this last song. I wanna let you guys have this time, just a space with God, to ask him to help you, to just release that and show you. So let's, let's pray. Father, thank you that you can multiply anything that we give to you. We ask that you would indeed take these small things, that you would indeed use them as you see fit. We don't know how, we see the great problems, but we trust you with the bits that we give you to use them in Jesus' name.